Discover community, find hope, and experience God. This is Discovering Hope. Here's a phrase you've heard a few times in the last few months. Are you ready? You fill it in for me. I'll just start. You finish. Are you ready? B. Mm, That was pretty lame. You've been here for a long time. Let's try that one more time. B. Awesome. Uh, As we've discuss this idea of being church. You've heard this metaphor used over and over and over again. The church is effectively one body with many parts all working together to accomplish the mission that Christ gave the church. And we describe it this way for a reason, largely because the biblical writers like Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, describe the church as a body with many parts working together. So in keeping with the metaphor, we haven't exactly used this word, but over the past few weeks, as Paul has gotten to the nitty-gritty of what it means to live like the body of Christ, he's also covered what we would call, metaphorically, illnesses. Illnesses that get into the body of Christ and can affect the function of the body. The kinds of characteristics that have a way of destroying unity that have a way of destroying relationships, that have a way of destroying your ability to be God-mirrors, as we talked about a number of weeks ago, to reflect his character, character around the world, to, or around the, uh, to the world around us. What are these illnesses? Well, they're characteristics like stealing, lying, lack of forgiveness, lack of grace, lack of gentleness, lack of patience, All things that Paul has described in one way or another will affect the human or affect the church as body. Now, when you think about it, all of these illnesses are actually fairly easy to diagnose. When someone is being resentful, unforgiving, harsh, it's, it's easy to see. Much like the human body, it does not take anyone with a significant medical degree to look at a leg that is broken into two pieces and diagnose what's wrong. The, the, the leg is broken. Because it's in pieces. It's easy to see. But like the body, there is also something called the silent killer. It's the stuff that's not as easy to see because it's a matter of the heart. And they can exist for a fairly long time, kind of like in the human body, high blood pressure, the silent killer that that doesn't necessarily exhibit any kind of symptoms, but in time it starts to show and it starts to take its toll on the body. And the body as a result of that condition of the heart starts to break down. So today I'm going to ask you to be the doctor. Now, If you are a doctor, that's going to be relatively easy for you. For the rest of us, we're going to have to try a little harder. We are going to walk through a doctor's appointment. And in this case, you are the doctor. Now, it's not just a unique idea because you get to be a doctor and you probably aren't. But in this case, you get to be the doctor and the patient. This is absolutely a self-diagnosis. And don't get me wrong, I understand it would be a lot more fun to be the doctor and diagnose everybody else's problems, especially if we're married, right? We love to listen to sermons while we're married and do one of these every couple of seconds. You hear that, honey? <laughs> In this case, you'll be the doctor, you'll be the patient, and we're going to walk through this doctor's appointment together and do some assessment of what is happening right in here. 
And you know, of course, the reason you're willing to do this, because that might be a question, why would I be willing to do this? It's because you're so motivated to make sure that the health of the body is good. You want to make sure that as you grow in your relationship with Christ, as you participate in this church called the body of Christ, you are going to be healthy that you won't be the cause of breakdowns in relationships or in emotional health and, and ultimately be the carrier of a disease that could really ruin the health of the overall body. So with that, we launch forward. With great motivation, you walk in your appointment and you start looking for symptoms of unhealth as you, the doctor, listen to you, the patient, talk about how it's going. What are those symptoms, you ask? Glad you asked. We start with the symptoms, and I want you to know, because some of you have already looked at Ephesians chapter 5, we know that we're on verse 3 to 8, verses 3 to 8, you've jumped ahead, and the first words kind of caught your attention really quickly. I want you to know this is going to be a completely family-friendly version of this passage. But we do have to deal with some difficult challenges, some real questions, because you might have read ahead and noticed that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, as he starts digging into these symptom, he says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. And immediately you pause and say, wait, I thought this was a disease of the heart. I thought, I thought you said this was a silent killer, that the symptoms weren't really obvious, and yet the very first symptom seems like it would be fairly obvious. But, but hang in there with me, because he says, but among you, there must not even be any hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of of impurity. Most certainly, sexual immorality is a very obvious and visible symptom, but when you include this idea of any hint of impurity whatsoever, you realize that at the core of this symptom is a condition of the heart, something that begins very silently inside your heart, inside your head. And eventually it can work itself out to obvious symptoms, but it all begins right in here. In fact, it's an idea that Jesus taught explicitly when he said it's not just good enough to follow the commands, he said, if you're following my, my prescription for life, to not commit sexual immorality. He said, but even if you've looked at another person lustfully, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. And so, so there's this very silent beginning to a very, very dangerous symptom that we call sexual immorality. James, in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, actually gives us the the description of how this unfolds. This is what he says. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Begins here. And then the process. Then after that desire has conceived, something happens that it becomes more real. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. In action, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So this symptom of sexual immorality really begins with an impurity of the heart and of the mind, and when not dealt with, becomes an action great. That's the great philosophical, the theoretical idea, but what is it exactly? What is this sexual morality that is a symptom of the unhealth of a body? 
I wrestled with how to walk through this portion of it, and it occurred to me that it might be simpler than I thought at first. When I observe our culture, when I take in what is happening around us in our world, I thought the easiest thing might be to, rather than tell you what kinds of things qualify as sexual immorality, to rather describe what is a healthy, biblical, created by God sexual ethic and say, outside of that, it is immoral. Because that idea is actually quite simple, quite straightforward. Outside of the prescribed sexual ethic that God has blessed us with, outside his created order, it gets pretty complicated. Uh, Pastor Pat and I were talking about this passage a few weeks ago, and he quoted something that has stuck with me. Essentially, because you belong to God, he said, what you do with your body matters. Because you belong to God and because your body belongs to the one who created it, what you do with your body matters. So how is it that he has prescribed for us to use these bodies? In general, a healthy biblical sexual ethic that I believed you and I were designed for and created for, it's pretty simple. God made you. Nothing new there. We reminded ourselves a few few weeks ago that God made you in his own image He made you to be a reflection of him, male and female. And in addition, he created marriage and the physical union between a a man and a woman to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage relationship for life. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Outside of those parameters, things start getting really muddy and really complicated and I can I assure you I can hear almost physically hear the voices of our culture screaming right now can you hear them that's it ah you prude you're so conservative that's not realistic I mean, I was a young man once. I, grew, I, I was on sports teams with a lot of other young men. You can't, I can't count how many times I heard, I'm not built for monogamy. Really? You might want to take that up with the one who built you. We belong to God. What we do with our bodies matters. Well, what about all of my unsatisfied desires? What about all the rest of it? Now, whenever I hear an argument like this, or any argument, in my mind, I have to take into account who the speaker is. So when I hear the voice of culture screaming, that's not good enough for me, I'm going to need something else, I take into account the voice of our culture, which has come to believe a very, very mistaken notion. In this case, this is the voice of a culture, and pardon me for being frank, but this is the voice of a culture that is obsessed with sex. This is the voice of a culture that has mistakenly come to believe that if only you can go far enough, if only you go far enough outside God's prescription for a healthy sexual ethic, if only you can go far enough for how God has desires for us to use our bodies, somehow out there, there will be satisfaction for my soul. And it's not true. 
You cannot go further and further and further and, and more broadly outside the scope of God's created design for you and expect that if only you take one more step and go a little further and a little farther beyond what you all have already done, that somehow it will suddenly become satisfactory. There is no scenario in which you dishonor God with your body enough that somehow you start feeling better. And so Paul says there shouldn't be any kind of impurity at all. It's inappropriate for God's people because it destroys the church, the body. It's be, it breaks God's model for relationship and for trust and for the health of the soul It can be a disease that will ruin the body. As if the appointment wasn't heavy enough, you you realize this is just the beginning of the symptoms that you are about to describe. You, the doctor, are hearing this from your patient, you. And he says, the second symptom I'm experiencing is this thing called greed. Now, as with most illnesses, the symptoms have some kind of relation to each other. Immorality really just grows out of the greed for more than God created you in terms of your sexual ethic. The word greed just expands that same idea and spreads it to all other areas of your being and life. One writer described greed as the attempt to get more out of life than God put into it. So here's everything that God has given you and greed says, yeah, but that's not enough. I need something more. It's an attitude that says whatever God is giving me Whatever God has blessed me with isn't enough for this guy. I want more. I need more. And so help me, I'm gonna get more. It's greed. In a a layman's terms, chuckle, chuckle, it's discontent. Greed ultimately is the equivalent of being unsatisfied. What are the things that we could be unsatisfied with? We've already talked about one of them. You're not satisfied with my marriage, either the relationship part or the, or the physical part of it, or both. But it extends so much beyond that when one starts to believe they can't be satisfied with their job. They can't be satisfied with their family or their family situation. Or they can't be satisfied with their income or their toys or their friends and here's a tough one. I, had, I thought about this for quite a while as I even considered saying it, but we can actually become dissatisfied with our health because mine is failing and I, and I look out there and I see other people who aren't struggling the way I am. I don't mean me personally, but as, as the patient in this doctor relationship. And you can become dissatisfied with your church. The list just goes on. Discontent is the result of greed is the perspective in which we look at what's out there and we become dissatisfied with what we have right here because what's out there looks better to us from this perspective than what we have right here. And so we forget about what's here and we continually long for what's out there, but we can't reach it. So we are constantly in a state of discontent and anxiety and dissatisfaction. And it's easy to see why it destroys the body. It's easy to see why a symptom like this begins to destroy, has a breakdown in the overall body because how can you possibly rejoice with that person over there? 
How can you possibly mourn with that person over there? How can you possibly serve that person over there if all you look at and see out there is somebody who has something that you want and can't have? And suddenly the whole idea of a church, one body serving together, breaks down. And then he mentions one more symptom. He says, but among you there must not be any hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's people. And he adds to the list in verse 4, nor should there be obscenity. There's your symptom. And he describes it as foolish talk, foolish talk or coarse joking. These are a little difficult to define. They're they're a little abstract. I, I do know one Uh, thing for certain, it does not mean that in the body there should not be humor. So we need to put a rest to that immediately. God ultimately, in my understanding, is the creator of humor. I believe God is actually quite humorous himself. And and if I'm just being honest, standing up here and looking at all of you, that makes that really obvious that God is humorous. And I know you're thinking the same looking back at me going, oh yeah, you should talk. And humor is a powerful tool that in the right hands, the church can be used to draw others to Jesus. That is not what Paul is speaking of. But there is something that he describes as as obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Foolish talk seems to be the kind of talk that neglects the basic understanding that God is the king of the universe and we are subordinate to that. Proverbs describes the way of wisdom as the fear of the Lord, the opposite being neglecting the idea that God is king. Foolish talk somehow is the kind of speech, the kind of communication that denies that God exists or that God has a, has a, has a superior role or that I have to be subordinate to him. Coarse joking, on the other hand, also kind of difficult to define exactly. It it seems to be that in the context of immorality, it has something to do, maybe stage two of the symptom of sexual immorality, where, where a thought doesn't immediately move to an action, but there has to be some steps in between. And coarse joking seems to be the avenue through which the illegitimate, inappropriate desires of the heart start making inroads into the world of actually participating in in an active way of what those thoughts are. So, pardon the pun, but coarse joking is flirting with an idea, maybe even testing the waters to see if there's receptivity from another person to my inappropriate desires and thoughts. And this is why it's so important to examine the heart closely. Now, that's a lot. You, the doctor, have just heard your patient describe all of these symptoms to you, and you are now in a spot where you have to diagnose what is taking place. So, doctor, what disease does the client, the patient, have? It's actually pretty simple. You've got to look it up in the medical journal. It happens to be in this medical journal called the Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For of this you can be sure, here's the symptoms, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. And then he just pauses. Before he even finishes the thought, he offers the diagnosis. Such a person is an idolater. 
So we have now covered the symptoms, and the diagnosis in this case is that you have the disease, you have been infected with idolatry. Again, in layman's terms, you have been infected with discontent. Now the word idolatry has confused me. As as an adult, I've, I've figured it out, but idolatry to me as a kid that grew up learning the Bible stories meant the Israelites in the, the desert. As Moses goes up the mountain, he comes down with the Ten Commandments and these tablets, and the people he sees have put all of their jewelry into a fire. They've melted all down. They've got this gold you know, liquid, and they've shaped it into the form of a cow, a calf, and they have now set that calf up on a, on a stand, and they are dancing around it and worshiping the calf. Now, I, I can tell you as a young, young boy, I would hear these stories and i go, What? You just made that. Like, you didn't, you didn't go out to your shop and build something and then bring it to church and say, let's worship this. Because everybody would go, well, that's, that's insanity. That's ridiculous. That is idolatry. But as I grew older, I realized it's way more subtle than that. None of us, or very few of us, are tempted to build something with our hands and then worship it. Worship it, But the disease is the same. It just looks different. The way of wisdom described in Proverbs earlier suggested that anything that takes God out of his rightful place as the king of the universe in our lives ultimately becomes a form of idolatry for us. No, it isn't necessarily a golden calf, but it could be any number of other far more subtle items. Effectively, when you something other than God becomes the most important part of your life, you have become an idolater. And the symptoms are as described. Put differently, when anything that isn't God gets in the way of you and your relationship with God, you will immediately subject yourselves to the symptoms of idolatry. And if not dealt with, they get worse and become full-blown disease. Put differently yet, the only thing that will offer you satisfaction in any measure on this earth is your relationship with Jesus. Anything else will fall short. And when you put something else in front of Jesus, you guarantee discontent. What are those? We've talked about them. Literally anything, even good stuff. Good stuff can become your idol and and make you fall victim to discontent when good stuff isn't God himself. What kind of good stuff? Do you know, I believe that family could become an idol. When my family and my relationships with my family and keeping the status quo is more important to me than my relationship with God. I think doctrine could become another wait a minute we all have to believe the right thing absolutely but when doctrine gets in the way of having a relationship with god or reaching others for jesus it has become an idol we've already referenced sexual morality but let's keep carrying the the appointment forward we've we've understood some of the symptoms we've now handed the diagnosis and the doctor or the doctor has handed you the diagnosis and you the patient are starting to process Uh oh i might have a serious disease What's going on? What do I got to do? Now, it depends on how seriously you take the disease. You might be tempted to say, okay, doc, I've got to make some changes. But inside you're going, (laughs) but really, but really, if I don't make some changes, think how deadly is this thing, right? Like I can live with it a little bit if it means I don't have to make too many changes, but how deadly is this disease exactly? What's the harm if I don't do anything? 
well, the doctor says to you, the, to you, the patient, well, we need to enter into the stage of the appointment we call prognosis. What is the end result of this disease? Ephesians chapter 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person is an adulterer. There's the, there's the diagnosis. Here's the prognosis. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of God? Let no one deceive you with any empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disappointed, sorry, disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. No such person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I make a mistake. I have a past that I'm not proud of. I'm currently struggling with something in my heart. And I've been honest enough to play this little doctor-patient game with you, Mason, and you're telling me if I have any troubles in this area, I have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, I'm doomed? And the answer is no, that's not what's being said. Because as with most illnesses, this one is completely curable. If you want it to be. And you are willing to give yourself to the cure. I don't hear in these verses in any way, shape, or form saying there is no hope or that if you've made mistakes, you are doomed. In fact, I don't think Paul would even discuss this if there was no hope, if there was no, if there was no way out, if there was no cure, if there's no ability to deal with this in any way, why would you even talk about it? You wouldn't write about it, you just accept it and move on. He's writing about it for a reason, and the reason is to introduce the hope that it doesn't have to be this way. Now I'll say this, if this is all you want, the symptoms and the disease, and ironically if you are, I don't know how else to word it, but if you're totally satisfied and happy being totally unsatisfied and unhappy, then the prognosis is pretty straightforward. And it's a harsh reality. If you desire to be divorced from God, and, and you want outside of his purposes and will, he's a gentleman, so to speak, and he will honor that desire and allow you to have what it is you desire. But I don't believe for a second most of us, if any at all, want that. Those of us who are followers of Christ struggle with some of these kinds of things. I do, and you do. And yet here we are being painted with a picture that is so much better. I hear in these verses the idea that there is hope, that there is something other than discontent leading to immorality and greed and obscenity. In fact, there's an antidote. And you've entered into the final part of this doctor-patient appointment. It's not exactly explicit in a passage like this, but it is implicitly there and it is explicit throughout the scriptures. In these verses is an invitation. And if you haven't done so already, there is an invitation to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time. You want hope? You want something other than the symptoms that plague you? You want something other than the disease that Paul has diagnosed us with, this is something Jesus offers. You want something, uh, you want a way out of the relentless cycle of a thought, a desire giving birth to ugly sin. You want something other than being a slave to the greed that has captured you. You want something other than this relentless pursuit of contentment which always seems out of reach. 
come to Jesus, whose blood was shed for you, whose blood washes away all of it, the symptoms and the disease, and offers the cure in a flood of grace. Come to Jesus, who offers you hope of contentment and peace and freedom from your slavery to idolatry. For many of us, this is not news. You are followers of Jesus. But the disease lingers. That's normal, by the way. Paul describes it as the battle between the old self and the new self. And it goes on for the rest of our lives as we continue to desire to grow in holiness and struggle with the remnants of our old self. Can I suggest a simple antidote? Rather, I'm going to let Paul do it because it's right in here in Paul's medical journal. After he describes some of the symptoms, he says there shouldn't be this or this or this, but rather, it's a simple word, he says, rather, thanksgiving. You see it, don't you? All of this, all of the idolatry, all of the discontent can only take place if we ignore everything that is right here, refuse to be grateful for what is in front of us, and instead long for something that is outside of our reach. Idolatry is wanting what is out there rather than showing gratitude and thankfulness for what is right here. By the grace of God, if you are living and breathing, you have more than you deserve. By the grace of God, perhaps in that reality we could give thanks and save ourselves a mile of heartache. And who knows, maybe become the kind of healthy church that continues to grow in stature and maturity and sees tens and hundreds of others being freed from their slavery to idolatry and becoming Christ worshipers. As the worship team enters the doctor's office, which is odd, but normal in a spiritual checkup, as they lead us in worship, would you consider giving your heart to Jesus? For some of you, that might mean for the very first time and starting to feel and sense the freedom that comes in worshiping him. For those of you who are already serving Christ, will you consider this moment as we worship together a time to reflect on just exactly what God has blessed you with and offering a, a song of thanksgiving?